morning to Psalm 1. We're going to be reading uh, the first psalm this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Because we're going to kind of rephrase the opening line of this psalm. And, and I'm going to rephrase it in my own language, the way I talk, kind of how I talk about the world. And, and, I, and I think the world kind of breaks down into basically two ways. Uh, it's either good deals or bad deals. And that's just kind of how things work. You either get a good deal or you get a bad deal. And, and almost everything can be summed up in those terms. That's the way I think about things. No matter what it is, it's either a good deal or a bad deal. And, you know, most of the time when I, when I think about my life, I think I got a good deal. It's a good thing. Things are good. I'm, I'm happy. I'm blessed. I've got a good family. Um, I, I love my wife, my kids. It's a good deal. Um, but we often look out and we see other people's deal and we'll say, well, their deal is better than my deal. And so we'll look at someone and they'll have this house that's different or maybe larger or more expensive than our house. And we'll say, well, their deal is better than my deal. Or maybe we're at work and someone got a job that maybe we had hoped to get. And we'll say, well, they got a better deal than me. Or maybe someone got a pay raise that I didn't get. And I'll say, well, they got a better deal than I did. Um, you know, that happens in life. We, we look around and we kind, of, we kind of measure things by how they relate to other things. And we say, well, who's, who's getting a good deal here? And we always know that we can look around and find people that we get a better deal than. But I think that's how a lot of people think about the world. I don't think I'm the only one that thinks this way. That we kind of measure things in relationship to other things. And who's getting, who's getting the good end of this thing? And, and is it good? And is it a good deal? And how's my deal in relationship to your deal? And how's your, relation, your deal in relationship to someone else's deal? Whether it's work or family. I mean, we've known families that, man, it just seems like everything works for them. You know, they're healthy. They're happy. They're not a bunch of, they're not fussing and fighting. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they just seem to have a good deal going. And then we've seen families. We've all seen this. People that we love and care about. It doesn't seem, it seems like no matter what happens, they got a bad deal. It just keeps going bad for them. And we say, man, they got a bad deal. That, that just doesn't seem to work. No matter how hard they try, it seems to go badly for them. And so I, I think a lot of people, I may be wrong, but I think a lot of people think about the world kind of in these ways. I do. And scripture, um, scripture does this, I believe, as well. I think scripture talks a lot about um, how life works. And it presupposes some questions and then it answers those questions. And one of the questions that Scripture answers, and that's kind of not going to use the language of good deal or bad deal, but it's real similar. It asks the question of who is really blessed? Who, who is actually blessed? And when we say blessed, we mean uh, the, the way the biblical writers use that word is who has it good? Who, who's, who has a good life or what is a good life and who has one? And what does it take to have one? And, you know, those kinds of questions. Philosophers have asked those questions. Theologians have asked those questions. And I think we ask those questions. Let's read this text together. And, and we'll, we'll, you'll see right, up, right off the bat how this starts off. It says this. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is God's word. Amen? Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and speaking about his word. Father, we ask that you would bless 
the public reading of your word. You've admonished us to continue to read your word publicly. And so we read it now and proclaim it to one another and we say amen to it. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that we would be uh, encouraged in the inner man to follow you. Amen. So we, we see this text and it, and it starts off the very first line, blessed is the man. So here's what I believe is happening here. I think the author of this psalm is answering a hypothetical question that's being posed to him by his reader. And he's saying, if you were to ask me who is blessed, I would answer who is blessed this way. And so the author takes it upon himself to write this answer. And he says, blessed is the man who... And we're going to talk about Psalm 1 and, and who the blessed man is and what the blessed life looks like. But before we go very much further, before I say much more about this, I want you to take a test with me. You like taking tests? Did you, were you ready? Did you guys bring your pencils? Did you? Winnie? Are you ready for a test? All right, here we go. We're, this, this test comes out of the New Testament. And, uh, and I'm not going to grade you on it. And I don't want you to raise your hands. But I, I just want you to do this with me. Is it better or worse? Those are your two categories. Again, good deal, bad deal. Is it a better deal or a worse deal to be hungry or well-fed? What's better? Okay. Is it better or worse to be poor or rich? Is it better or worse to grieve or be happy? Is it better for you or is it worse for you? To be well-respected and liked or hated and oppressed. Which is a better deal? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he's trying to trick me. (laughs) And if he's trying to trick me, I should say the one that I think is the opposite of what I really think. Because that's how trick questions work. Let me just tell you, I'm not trying to trick you. Because it's it's just a tricky issue all together. If you were to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 6, you can find this. This scenario going back and forth. Starting in verse number 20, in the book of Luke chapter 6, Jesus, um, Luke records the Sermon on the Mount in a shorter version than Matthew does. This, this is the same, same text that Matthew talks about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he, he talks about what the blessed life is right at the beginning of his sermon. And he says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for you will get the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for someday you'll be satisfied. I'm kind of paraphrasing as I go. Blessed are you who weep now, for someday you're going to laugh. You will. You'll laugh someday. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But then he says something that's even more surprising. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Wow. It's an upside-down world in the kingdom that Jesus taught about, isn't it? All of the things that we would naturally think are good and right and healthy and happy about the world, Jesus says there's a likelihood that you're going to be cursed if you have those things. And all of the things that we're all trying to avoid every week with our paychecks and our families. I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the purpose of a paycheck is to make sure you can insulate yourself 
from economic despair and, and class, uh, catastrophe and calamity, right? I mean, we work hard so we can make sure we can pay our bills and have a home and feed our families. I mean, that's, we do that, and that's not wrong. It's not wrong. But Jesus said, the poor people will be blessed because someday I'm going to make it different. And we're going to come back and talk about this again in a few minutes. But I wanted to put this test out there because I think there's something intuitive in all of us that looks at the world and, and, is, and is always asking this question, who's getting the good deal here? Because I think that's what the blessed man question is about. See, the, the blessed man is a character that reappears throughout Scripture. He's in the Psalms. He's in the Proverbs. And the reason I say character is because it's like a literary device. You know, when, when you read a, a work of fiction, wh- whether it's a Western or a crime novel or some romance, uh, whatever it is, some kind, of, some kind of fictional work, the author, if, if they're good at what they do, they're going to try to put some kind of character, usually in that fictional work, it's what, what they call the everyman. And the idea of the everyman is that anyone should be able to find something to identify with, with this person about. And so you're going to read, the, you're going to open up, you're going to read this story, and you're going to see these bad people coming along or some kind of conflict that has to be overcome. And you've got this person, and this person's the everyman. And I can relate to this person. And, and this person's not real, but I can know a lot about the world, and, I can, and it helps me think about things by how I relate to this person and how the author takes this person on this journey to overcome some problem. And it doesn't really matter what the book is. It's almost always like that. I mean, if you read a book that you can't identify with any of the characters, the likelihood is you won't finish it and you won't recommend it to a friend. It's a bad book. But if you read a book and you say, man, I I relate to that. That makes sense. And here's how they handled their problems. And here's how they overcame their issues. That that makes good sense to me. You'll, You'll relate to that every man character. Well, the blessed man is a character that reappears throughout Scripture. It's not one person. It's an idea. It's saying, if we, if, we, if we abstract our minds up here to think about the world, who's blessed? What does the life of a person look like that God favors? Who is the blessed man? Jesus asked this question, and he answered it in the Sermon on the Mount. James talks about the blessed man. A lot of New Testament people believe that the, that the, that the letter that James wrote to the Christians should actually be considered Jewish wisdom literature. The same kind of thing as the Psalms and the Proverbs because he's addressing what does the blessed life look like before God. Here's the part that I think is really interesting to me. Now that we've taken our test and we've, we're feeling some angst about the blessed man, you know, I, mean, I hope you are because I am. Can I, can I just be honest? I don't want to be poor, hungry, sad, or have people hate me. That's just honest. I don't. I don't, look, I, I don't go around Woodward cutting people off, throwing my food out, getting cash out of the bank and throwing it out the window, you know, trying to get, and then trying to get everybody mad at me. I don't do that. I want people to like me, try to save my money, want to feed my family. I'd rather have more at the end of the month than less. And I don't think that's wrong, and I don't think that's what Jesus was teaching. But I want you to understand that, that the kingdom of God is surprising, And it will surprise you in some of the things that Jesus says about your life and his life and what this kingdom looks like. So think about something with me. We just had this great time of worship together, singing. We came together to to praise the Lord and we sang in song and we clapped. And you all did a good job clapping, by the way. Good work. Um, Because it took us a little while to get there, but we got there and we clapped together and that was wonderful. I I enjoyed that. When, When you open up the Bible and you say, well, where's the hymn book for the Bible? We just started it right here. The book of Psalms is the hymn book for the Bible. And when you read the very first Psalm, 
that was written in the hymn book for the Bible to help people know how to praise God. There's not a word in here about singing. There's not a word in here about music. There's not a word in here about enthroning God on high. There's no call and response to remember that the love of God endures forever. There's nothing recounting the story of how God has delivered his people. Now, the very first psalm, when you look in the hymn book of the people of God, is concerned with two things, two ways to live life. And what that tells me is that singing, music, recounting the stories of God, all of those are a subset of a life that's well lived before God to his praise and his honor. And we need to understand what our lives are supposed to look like before God, before any other thing will matter. I mean, we could, you could come here and sing and hate God, but you could make yourself do it. God wouldn't be pleased with that. You could come here with sin all wrecked through your life and shake hands and smile. God's not pleased with it. He wants you to repent and come and to know him. What he's primarily concerned with for you and for me is the quality of our life. Because worship isn't a thing that is not a thing that just primarily happens on Sunday morning for 45 or 50 minutes or an hour and a half if I go long. It, it's just not. What worship is, is our life lifted up to God. Every action, every transaction, our work, the way we raise our children, the way we cook our meals, the way we mow our yard. Every part of our life is to be given up as an honor and offering to God as worship. And then the overflow of that is this. The coming together to sing and to praise and to make music and to clap our hands and to, and, to, and to leap for joy is what he says for how great God is and what he means in our lives. So when we answer the question, who is the blessed man? I, before we go to the New Testament, again, we will go back there in a minute. I just want to camp right here in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, the very beginning of the worship book in Scripture. And the very beginning, the very first line in the very... First Psalm that teaches us how to worship God in Scripture says your life really matters. And the way you live your life matters a lot to God. And He wants you to have this picture in your mind of who the blessed man is. And then He wants you to aspire to that and by faith come to Christ and trust Him and then begin to live in that reality. So let's look at four things in this Psalm and we'll walk through them together. The first thing I want you to see is the negative. All right, the first thing is the negative. What the blessed man does not do. The blessed man doesn't do three things. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, there's a purposeful uh, regression away from God in these three lines. The, the writer is being very intentional. And he's moving this figurative person... He's saying, here's what it looks like to move away from God, continuing to back up. The blessed man does not do this. The blessed man continues to move toward God. But if you were going to be, if the blessed man was going to go off the track, here's what he'd start doing. He would do these other things, but we know he doesn't do that. So let's look at the three of these quickly. The negative, what is it? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So here's the idea that you got of walking. In this day and age, hardly anybody had money for any kind of transportation other than what God had already given them, which is their feet. So everybody walked almost everywhere they went. Very, very wealthy people could afford some kind of animal to either ride on it or drag a cart and they could sit in the cart. But almost everybody else walked everywhere. And so you had the roads and uh, there's, there's robbers and thieves on the roads and it's not always safe to travel by yourself. And it takes you a long time to get anywhere that you're going. So when you, when you decide to go walk somewhere, the blessed man purposes as he's walking 
to not join in the purposes of the wicked. Because what would happen? You've got this group of people and maybe two or three families are going to go from this area to this area. And they all need to go. Well, what do they do? They all just join in together and they walk together as a company. They walk together as a group. Or sometimes strangers might be caught up into your group. And so you're walking along and just for everybody's protection and, and to get to know people for social reasons, people would just walk together. Well, the wicked walk just like the righteous. I mean, if you're going to set out to do wrong, you're going to have to get there just like the righteous is going to have to get to wherever he's going. The blessed man spots the wicked and their purposes and chooses not to be in company with them. He won't walk with them. He backs up. He waits till they pass on by. Then he walks his way because his way is upright before the Lord. So he won't walk with the counsel of the wicked or the purpose of the wicked. The second thing is the blessed man will not stand with sinners. Now, we need to think about some terms here. What do we mean by sinners? There's two ways we use the word sinner in Scripture kind of broadly, but more, more specifically the way we use it. We're going to say everybody's a sinner, right? And almost anyone you meet, if you ask them the question in the right way, you'll get that answer. Well, sure, everybody's a sinner. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody does wrong things. That's really not the way this verse means the word sinners. What it means here is a person who openly and flagrantly sins against God, doesn't care whether anybody knows it or not, and really doesn't care what God thinks about it. They're going to live a sinful life openly. And, and in Scripture, we see that people are called sinners. It's actually kind of impolite to go into someone's house and say they're a sinner, unless you're saying that everyone's a sinner. Have you ever noticed that? I can say something bad about you, like call you a sinner, as long as I say it about me and everybody else too. Guilt by association. So we're all the same. But I can't come into Bonnie's house and say, Bonnie, you're just a, you're a sinner. I mean, that, you'd be like, well, that may be true, but you shouldn't say it like that, John. I mean, because I would say Bonnie has sinned and I have sinned. And so in one sense, we're both sinners. But if I come and say, Bonnie, you're a sinner. You see what I mean by the differences? So one means I'm setting her aside, apart, and saying there's something wrong with your life. The other is we're saying we're all the same and we all commit sins. Scripture means it in that other way where we're saying these people are set apart purposefully by their own knowledge and intention. They don't mind that people know that they're sinful. And they sin openly and fragrantly, uh, and flagrantly. They just do it out there in front of everyone for everyone to see. Well, this text says that the blessed man won't walk with people who are wicked. He, he'll, he'll back up from them. But he also won't stand with the sinners in the way of the sinners. I was at Walmart yesterday. I was at Walmart twice yesterday. That's two more times than I usually go in one whole month. So I'm all the way... I, I, matter of fact, I think I'm full up till the end of summer. I, I try not to go. I just try to avoid it. I'm not a big shopper. And when I do go, I got one deal. In, purchase, out. And then look for my pickup because I never can find it. So there, it's always real clear cut what I'm trying to do when I get there. I've got like I had three things. Pulled the list out. Check, check, check. Get them in the quickest order to get out of the store. Find the fastest line to check out. Find my pickup, which usually takes longer than buying this stuff. And so I'm, that's my deal. And I had to go two times. Well, while I was in there the second time, something dawned on me. Walmart's kind of like a marketplace. You know, if you've ever been uh, in a developing nation or, or a nation that's more agricultural, um, you have these, we have one here in Woodward, the farmer's market, but a lot of times you'll have open air markets where people gather. 
And ironically, people don't only go to, the gather, to this market to buy stuff. They also go there to, to, to socialize and, and to congregate and to just spend time with each other and kind of get to know people. You know, we, we, talk, we call that water cooler talk in the office place. There's these places where we stand with each other. I, I saw a bunch of people at Walmart not doing anything other than just standing by each other talking, just hanging out, visiting. There were some, two or three people kind of had pulled off to the side of an aisle. You know, they didn't want to be, they didn't want to disrupt the flow of traffic. And so they just kind of pulled off to the side and they're just, they're just chatting. You could tell they probably hadn't seen each other in a day or two. I saw a group of um, like five or seven uh, bicycle people, you know, like that, that do like the long drives. And they were, you could tell they were road weary. They had pulled into Walmart to maybe buy some snacks or something. And they had their little backpacks on with the water deal and they were just standing there talking, not buying anything yet. They, they, were, they were standing in each other's presence. You know, there's something that says something about a relationship when we'll stand in each other's presence. Have you ever noticed that? You know, we, we kind of have these intuitive ideas about how close we can stand to each other. And I'll be on the edge of your personal space and you'll be right on the edge of my personal space. We don't talk to each other from across the room. When my kids want to talk to me and they're on the other side of the room, it's like, come over here. Stand right here and talk to me. When we stand with one another, we're actually kind of moving into the inner core of our, of our person, who we are. We're giving someone access to us. See, the blessed man does not want to walk in the purpose of the wicked. When he sees their purpose laid out, he backs up from it. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to walk with them. Get me in all kinds of trouble. Something might bad, bad might happen to me. Nor does the blessed man want to stand in the company of or in the way of sinners, people who openly, fragrantly say, I want nothing to do with God and I don't care what people know about my life. I'm going to live my life however and I don't care how bad it is. It's out there. They don't want to stand with them. The blessed man says, I want nothing to do with that. That person lives against God. I'm not going to stand with them. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull back from that. You see how this regression works? Walking, standing, Sitting, we're moving away from God here. See, the blessed man doesn't do these things. The blessed man says, I'm also not going to sit in the seat of the scoffer. I'm not going to sit with them. What is the scoffer in this picture? So the scoffer is the person, and we've got to understand the world of the Bible. We can't just try to bring the Bible into our world. We have to try to understand the world of the Bible. And from the psalmist's perspective, there's really only one law, one sovereign, one king, and that's God. And so what is it that you're scoffing against when you scoff? You're you're likely, I think, scoffing against God, against his word, against his law. You're saying you're you're debasing and subverting all that God says. So you've got the idea of the wicked. You've got the idea of the sinner. And here's the person who just openly says nothing. I mean, I want nothing to do with God. They're just, they discount God. They discount his word. They scoff and they mock it. Another translation says they won't sit in the seat of the mocker. You know, it's one thing for you to be disrespected by someone ignoring you. It's a whole other quality of offense if someone mocks you. Have you ever noticed that? So I could, if you asked me to do something, I could ignore you. That would be offensive if I just ignored you. But if I mocked you for asking me, if I turned around and mocked you to your face, you would be offended in a whole other way. Because we understand what mockery is. And we understand what scoffing is. It debases the other person. And it makes them less. And it's designed to, to drag them down. And to, to invalidate. So you've got the wicked. Won't walk with them. Got the sinner. Won't stand with them. 
the most intimate thing is to sit. You know, when I go to my dad's house, my dad lives in Purcell, Oklahoma, and and uh, he's an older man at this point, and his health is, is still pretty good, but he doesn't get around a lot. He doesn't travel much anymore, and so we go down to visit him. There's almost, and it's a long ways down there, so there's almost always things I need to do at their home. There's almost always stuff I need to take care of with my, with my mom, things that we need to do. But my dad only has one goal when we come down with, with the kids, just one goal, and it's always the exact same goal. Son, sit down. Sit down. Quit being so busy. Quit walking around. Come sit down. Bring the kids in here. Sit down. So we'll go back in, in his room where he's sitting, and we sit down. That's what we do. I've got other things I need to go do that I think I need to do, you know, check this and read that and help my mom with this other thing. But he's just got one goal. Sit down. Sit down and talk with me, son. My grandma was the same way when we would go visit her when I was a little kid. We, we'd, we'd come by to see her. She, she just had one thing she wanted us to do, which was sit down and stay. Have a cup of coffee. Drink some buttermilk. Sit down. Don't run off. Stay. Now, if I was, you know, using in, 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 in my grandma's world, if I was trying to sell her something, she'd close the door. Get out. Don't stay. Don't sit. No, you're not invited to sit down. Why would she want me to sit down? That reveals a level of intimacy in our lives, right? So here we are. Let's get this picture if we can get it here. We're walking down a road. Well, we're going to walk with lots of people. Family, friends, we're going to walk. But the blessed man, if he sees someone has a purpose that's wicked, he won't walk with them. Well, I may stand at the market or I may stand at Walmart with lots of people, but I don't want to stand with someone in their presence saying I have fellowship and we're the same. We share this relationship. Now, we're not talking about witnessing. We're not talking about trying to encourage someone for Christ. We're talking about sharing life together. I don't want to stand with. The blessed man doesn't stand with people who are openly against against God and their sin. Moreover, moreover, we don't sit with the scoffer and the mocker. Because, see, that reveals a kind of intimacy where we're saying, come and sit with me. Be close to me. I'll be close to you. Let's share something. What we're saying is we're like them. Why doesn't the blessed man do this? Because these are the negative things that are really, really troublesome about our lives when we go down this road. Alternately, the second thing I want you to see, that was kind of a big picture. We needed to get that in place. What the blessed man does not do. The blessed man, alternately, does this. This is the key thing that he does. His delight... Verse number two is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. So we know what he doesn't do. Now we know what he did, what he does. There's these two ways to live. And we see, we're going to see it played out here again in a second. The righteous and the wicked. And the blessed man is the righteous man. And so we see that primarily the way we describe the blessed man is his relationship to the word of God. The blessed man comes to the word of God and he has a vital, compelling relationship with the words that God has spoken. It goes so far as to say it's his delight, which is joy. He's happy about it. He's happy about it. When when he's involved with this, it, it brings him great joy. Moreover, he's happy about it in a regular kind of way. It says in the morning he thinks about it and in the evening he thinks about it. In the morning he's thinking about this issue and... At the close of his day, he's already thinking about it again. The blessed man is someone who has a vital and compelling relationship with the word of God. So the third thing I want you to see is a picture. Scriptures replete with pictures, full of pictures that give us illustrations of how life should work and helps us understand things. What's the picture here? The picture is this, and it's, it's on our background. It says, the blessed man. Let me tell you a picture of what the blessed man's like. The blessed man's like a tree. All right? 
How is he like a tree? He's like a tree in this way. He's like a tree in that he's planted by streams of water. And this tree will yield its fruit in its season. And this tree does not wither its leaf. It's strong and it's it's verdant and it's green. Have you ever tried to plant trees? It's actually kind of tricky. You bring a tree from somewhere else. You dig a hole in your yard. You put it in there. And if you're out here, it doesn't rain a whole lot. So you got to you know, drag a water hose over there and water it. And there's shock. The tree goes through some shock when it gets moved from one piece of ground to another. I, I've never had very much luck getting trees to grow. I've, I've had a few grow. But, it, you know, it's not even a certain thing once you kind of get them up and moving that they're going to live. Have you ever experienced in a really dry summer driving down the road and see a brown evergreen tree that's 20 foot tall? I've seen that happen. You say, well, how can it be that a tree that's that big would, would die? Well, it's because not every tree is like the tree that we see in Psalm number 1. Psalm number 1 is a tree that in some ways pushes back on the curse. What's the curse that we're talking about here? The curse of the fall. You remember God cursed the earth because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It's almost like we kind of get a little bit of a preview here of what a future looks like when the curse is pushed back. See, this tree always bears its fruit. And this tree, its leaf never withers. Why? It's a special tree. You know... There's other trees in Scripture that I want to draw your attention to because I think trees are great pictures for us. There's two trees in the Garden of Eden, right, that are really important. What were they? The tree that was about good and evil and the tree that was about life. And so if you eat from the tree that was about good and evil, what happens? You're in rebellion against God. He said, don't do that. What happens if you were to eat from the tree of life? The book of Genesis says you might live forever. What would happen if you ate from the tree of good and evil, which God told you not to do, now you're in rebellion, and then you ate from the tree of, good, uh, of, of life? Would it be possible? I mean, we could just think this. I mean, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but it might be the case that these trees are symbols of that God doesn't want us to be in rebellion and living forever apart from him. It actually could be the case that it's a really good thing that God kicked people out of the garden. So that they, don't, that they don't persist in rebellion forever, but that they can be transformed and brought back into relationship with him. If you fast forward from Genesis to Psalms, you see a picture of a tree that shows you what life under God looks like. The blessed man. And if you hit the fast forward button all the way to the end of scripture, what do you see? You see another tree. You see another tree in the book of Revelation that bears fruit every month. There's these really great pictures in Scripture that show us that there's an end for which God has created our lives. There's a purpose in our life, and there's a purpose for each one of us, a thing that He wants us to be and do. And that thing that He wants us to be and do is found right here in Psalm 1. Blessing, the blessing of God in our lives. Not wickedness, but righteousness and truth. Not sin and scoffing, but beauty. And wholeness before God. So the three things. We see the negative thing that the the blessed man doesn't do. We see the positive thing that he does. We see the picture. And that that this man is like this tree. And his life goes well. Scripture says that whatever this man does, he prospers in it. Because God is with him. But then the fourth thing I want you to see is the judgment. Psalm 1 has an immediate judgment. And it says this. He says, but it's not so with the wicked. The wicked, they're like chaff and they just blow away. We know what chaff is. It's the part of the grain harvest that's not of any use. It has no purpose and it blows away. Therefore, the wicked, they'll not stand with God. They have no standing, no right, no place. 
there with God in the judgment. So he'll judge them and, and dismiss them. They will not, they will not be able to uh, abide in the assembly of the righteous. So they'll be excluded from God's presence and from his people. Because God sees their ways. And he says, the way of the wicked will perish. He says, but the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Have you ever known people who, they're just wicked. They just do bad things. I don't mean people who make occasional mistakes. Have you ever thought about what the end of wickedness is? Does it ever, can you think of any time in anybody's life that it's ever gone well with them to pursue unrighteousness persistently? It always damages them or their family or their community, their town, their county, their region, their state. Some people's wickedness is so great that it can even affect an entire country. We can see that in history, can't we? Wickedness never ends well. The way of the, the, way of the wicked, they perish. Why? One, they'll, they'll, they'll meet a judgment before God at some point. But before God even has to judge them at the end, it always ends badly for people to pursue wickedness. We can look back in history and we can see that some people's wickedness was so great that it affected the whole world. Literally touched the lives of millions and millions of people around this planet. It always ends badly. So there's a real judgment that comes. And there are two ways to live. Now let's move back into... Luke chapter 6, and I want to tie some things up for you. What is it that Jesus means then when he says, this is the blessed man? What, what is it that we're after? Is it simply mean that a blessed man is a guy who reads his Bible every morning he reads it? He reads his Bible all the time. Well, well what do we do with this? Well, I think Luke chapter 6 says some things to us that are important for us to, make, to get this right. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to fall into moralism. We don't want to fall into just simply being good people. Have you known folks that when they, when they look at their life, they basically say, well, I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're good people. I mean, we do some bad things, but overall we're good. There's more good than bad. We're good people. I know a lot of people, even in churches, that their, their hope, their real confidence in their life is that they're good church-going people. That's really not, nowhere found in the New Testament. Jesus had little use, no use for anyone with that kind of attitude. Our hope and our righteousness is not in us or in our works or our efforts or in being good church-going people. That's not it at all. Jesus was speaking to those very kinds of people when he said this in Luke. There, there was a class of people who were very wealthy and had done very well for themselves. And they were, they were faithful believers in the sense of they believed in God and they went to temple and they did those things. But Jesus looked at them and he says... It's not going to end well for you because the heart of who you are is not with me. So here's what Jesus comes along and does. He does this great correction and basically looks around and he says, there's a lot of people who got a bad deal. Remember we started with that? Good deal or bad deal? You got a good deal, you got a bad deal. There's a lot of people that got a bad deal. But here's what he tells them. He says, even if you got a bad deal right now, hey, don't worry, there's hope because I'm here. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm talking to you about a kingdom that's coming, that's real. And, I, and I'm bringing the kingdom with me. Mark says that Jesus went out teaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he goes out teaching this kingdom and teaching the ways of the kingdom. And he sees the poor because there were many poor people. And he says, hey, hey, don't worry. If you come and believe in me, trust in me, you'll receive the kingdom of God. And he, and, he sees, and he sees the hungry and he says, hey, I know you're hungry today. And I know, I know you don't have enough land to produce enough food to eat. And, and the jobs are scarce. But don't worry. If you come to me, 
Someday you'll be fully satisfied because what I'm bringing in is altogether different than what is here today. And he sees people who are being oppressed and they're hated for his name. And he says, this is, this is, this is going bad right now, but don't worry. I've got it under control. Someday I'm going to turn it all around. And you will be blessed. And he says, and I know some of you are hurting and you're grieving. You're grieving all the time. Don't worry. I'm going to heal that and there will be laughter. So what he does is he gives them a word. He says, in your pain now I want you to rejoice. Why? Because you are the blessed man. Who is the blessed man in scripture? It's not the person who does more good than bad. It's not the person who is better than the next guy. It's not the person who looks around and says, hey, I got a pretty good deal. No, the blessed man in Scripture is the person who's uniquely fixed on God. If we go back to Psalm 1 and we talk about the Word of God, we're not talking about base memorizing the Bible or legalism. I've got to read my Bible X number of minutes a day. That's not the point. What is the point? The point is I am enamored with God. I've been struck by God. God's person and His character and the beauty of who He is, it so has changed my life that I want His Word. I want to hear from Him. I want to meditate on what he has to say. The blessed man is the man who has had a life-changing encounter with God in Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Jesus said that there's a big turnaround coming. Big turnaround coming. That the wealthy will be poor. That the well-fed will be hungry. That those who laugh today will cry. That those who are well respected today are going to be shunned. That's actually what we see in Psalm 1. We see a reversal. It's not so with the wicked. Their way always ends badly. You know what the difference is between the blessed man or the righteous and the wicked man or the unrighteous? Jesus is the difference. Uniquely, Jesus is the difference. If we come to Christ and we see him for who he is... You're going to get a blessing on your life and you'll be called the blessed man or the blessed woman or the blessed child. Why? Because you're walking according to the principles of this new kingdom that he's bringing. The realm that he's going to bring in for sure. As, as sure as we're breathing air, he's doing this. He's bringing that. And it's a good deal for you. Here's another way to say it. No matter how good of a deal you get now, if it doesn't include Jesus, it's all bad. No matter how bad of a deal you think you've got now, if Jesus is at the center of it, it's actually good. And all of your losses will be turned to gains. But here's the problem we've got to work on. Almost everybody in this room has got a good deal. Almost everybody in this room. The majority of your deal is pretty good. The majority of my deal is really good. I love my family. I love my little garden in the backyard. We've got a little swing set. My kids enjoy it. Got two cats, not so much, but we got two now. I mean, we got a lot of good stuff happening in our life. We, 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 we have time for rest, and when it's hot outside, it's cool inside. And when it's cold outside, it's warm inside. And we got some cars that we can drive if we need to go somewhere. And we got, we got some food that we need. You know, if we're hungry, we can eat some food. All we got to do is just open the deal, and there's some food there. We just open the, the cabinet or something, there's food to eat. I mean, I got a good deal. My family has a good deal. And we would be cursed by Jesus for having that good deal if we forgot him. He actually says that. Cursed are you, wealthy and well-fed 
and happy people who forget God. Who's the blessed man? The blessed man is, who's, is the one who got the good deal, and the good deal was Jesus. So how's your deal? Here's a serious question. Every one of us agreed, I think, in our hearts at least, that we don't want to be poor, hungry, unhappy, or hated. We all said that in our hearts. I don't want those things either. But it's better to have all those things and have Jesus than to not have those things and lose him. Because our life right now is a vapor and it's gone. But our life lasts forever. And we got to deal with Jesus. We got to deal with Jesus. So as you think about who the blessed man is, I want you to think about your life this morning. And I want you to answer this question. Is my deal good because Jesus is in the middle of it? Or is my deal good because it provides me the most comfort? And if it's that latter, I hope you get the former right. Jesus needs to be the center of your good deal. Let me pray with you. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching and teaching of your word. And Lord, help us now to respond to you in faith and to know that, that Christ is the center of what, it, of, what, of what your blessing is. And coming to Christ and trusting in him only and not ourselves, trusting in his work, not us, not our good acts, but his life, his truth, his kingdom. Oh, the forgiveness of sins that we find in him because of who he is and what he has done at the cross. Lord, that's the good deal. That's the blessed man. Lord, help us to see this clearly and to get our lives right with you and to trust you and not ourselves. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.